0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
2: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Page to Stage.
1: A conversation with theater makers.
2: We're your hosts.
1: That's Brian.
2: And that's Mary.
1: Join us as we focus the spotlight back on the theater maker to uncover their process.
2: We speak with folks in the industry that often aren't heard from.
1: Such as stage managers, producers, crew members, marketing professionals. And
2: everything in between. We hope you enjoy this episode.
3: I'm Max Vernon. I am a playwright, composer, lyricist, occasional costume designer, uh,
2: performer, and lover of eyeshadow and brooches. Yes. Thank you so much, Max, for joining us as we celebrate Pride 2020 on page to stage. Yay. (laughs) So if you wouldn't mind just diving right in, would you be able to talk a little bit about your education and what you went to school for?
3: Well, undergrad, I went to NYU Gallatin, which was kind of like the choose your own adventure school. And, uh, a lot of my interests have always been kind of like diverse and intersectional in terms of like, I want to take a class in Foucault and gender theory. And then I want to take a class in like the history of American carpentry. And like, then I want to take a class on music pedagogy and, uh, there's no way to do that other than Gallatin, really, because Gallatin lets you mix and match and take classes from all of the different uh, sub schools at NYU. So that was what I did. I, I did an individualized study that was primarily in gender and sexuality studies courses. But I also had as an advisor, Lauren Davis, who's Clive Davis's daughter, and she um, helped me. Uh, with taking a bunch of different kind of music classes through the the Clive Davis Institute at NYU, both in terms of production and arranging and also in terms of music, entertainment law
2: and the like. Now, gender and sexuality studies, you said that you went to school for that, too. Did you like? Yeah, that was primarily what I would say I got most of my credits in. Did you end up connecting that to theater or like music composition? Were you able to do that or was it really separate?
3: Uh, it was totally separate. Um, I, I mean, part of why I think I went to NYU is I knew really early on that I wanted to be in the city because I wanted to be performing and I started performing out as like a singer songwriter in New York when I was 18 and did, you know, between the ages of 18 and 22, I did something like a hundred concerts at venues around the Lower East Side and East Village and Brooklyn and what have you. Um, so kind of just felt like that was what was going to be my career. And then in terms of what I studied undergraduate, I just really wanted to do something that I found fascinating and intellectually stimulating. And what's really cool about queer theory is it's not really about just the history of, of this is what it means to be gay and Stonewall and Compton cafeteria and what have you. It's, um, kind of about queer theory is about understanding the ways in which identity is constructed and then performed. And so it's kind of a weird way of retraining your brain to see a lot of different things in culture that we see as fixed as being fluid. And, um, that certainly has applied
2: itself to how I create theater, I would say. Mm. What made you interested in pursuing this type of study?
3: Well, you know, it's really interesting because I didn't necessarily assume that I was going to end up with a degree in, uh, well, individualized study degree in gender and sexuality studies. But I just took a intro to gender and sexuality course, and I found my mind blown uh, at realizing that I had so much internalized femphobia and within myself uh, because I grew up very bullied and... You know, this is kind of what I got into with my musical, The View Upstairs, is that I grew up as a queer person, but felt very disconnected from the queer community because I didn't really have any mentors in that way. And so all of a sudden, in learning about my history, it gave me a much more profound sense of connectedness to my community and sense of self. And so suddenly I was like, I have to keep exploring this. It's so fascinating to me. And uh, yeah, I never really looked back.
2: You grew up in California, so was that really a whole new world for you when you went to NYU?
3: Uh, no, because, um... I was actually born in New York and my parents divorced when I was six, but I spent the first six years of my life here. And then, uh, every like three or four months a year, every holiday, I was back in New York seeing my dad. So I've actually spent more of my life cumulatively in New York than I have Los Angeles. So actually I kind of in Los Angeles, I felt more like a displaced New Yorker. The beach was definitely wasted on me growing up. I was like, I, you know, my house was like, Ten blocks from the beach, but I never went out. I just kind of stayed in all day with my head next to my record player, listening to Stevie Wonder records and Joni Mitchell records and Kate Bush records and Susie and the Banshees and Roxy Music and all that good stuff. So you didn't go to the beach.
2: I wish I can go to the beach right now. No, I was not a
3: jock. The only time I went to the beach—oh my god—I'm really giving you SMC. But the only time I went to the beach was that when I was in middle school. I was like I said, I was very bullied for my sexuality, but also because of my weight. Um, actually when I was like 13, even though I was like a foot and a half shorter, uh, than I am now, I was 30 pounds heavier than I am now. Um, and so just for my own personal health, I was like, I would like to change my image to, to get healthy in that way. And I start like the only way I could motivate myself to ever work out. Cause I, to this day, will never be caught dead in a gym. Was I would go to the arcade on the pier and I would play Dance Dance Revolution. Oh my god, the best! So Dance Dance Revolution helped me lose forty pounds. What? But that that is wow. literally the only. I know, isn't that that's so nuts? I'm like, what a weight loss program. Like, are you writing a book? Uh, <laughs> I'm definitely. Yeah, these are like the skeletons in my closet. Um, but yeah, that was the only reason I would ever go to the beach to be in an arcade.
1: How <laughs> did you notice um I'm curious with being like bicoastal at at such a pivotal moment in your life did you notice or were you looking for things with with theater and how art was being uh how they, it was speaking to you on either side of the coast so like west coast versus east coast at the time
3: you know it's interesting because I I grew up and my first passion was theater my first passion was broadway like my earliest memories are this is also some like skeletons in the closet shit but my earliest memories are being like 4 years old and singing Castle in the Cloud from Les Mis my dad had the cast album and I was like begging my mom and dad to like let me audition to be Cosette and they to their credit they weren't like um you can't audition to be Cosette um because you're not a girl but yeah, I grew up loving theater and I was obsessed with it. And I in the, in the same way, I take an ambient now occasionally if I need to sleep back then. The way I would fall asleep is I would put a little cast album on, on my boombox and that kind of knocked me out. But then while I would be asleep, I would incept myself and I would wake up with all the lyrics for all the different cast albums memorized. And so in the same way that, you know, young children have plasticity for language in their brains for, you know, absorbing Spanish or Japanese or uh, English or what have you, uh, I feel like the only language I absorbed was the language of musical theater. And so I grew up deeply passionate about it. And every time, you know, between the ages of, you know, birth i guess and uh around twelve, thirteen. anytime i came back to new york i needed to go see whatever was on broadway with my dad you know stand in the tkts line which was so magical to me seeing all the different shows pop up on the boards of course now you know that if your show is on the boards you're not doing well that means you're discounting your tickets because people don't want to see that shit but at the time it was very magical but so <laughs> i always loved that but then uh As I said, as I started becoming very, very bullied, mainly from my sexuality,
2: which I wasn't even aware of at the time, but everybody else was. Isn't that so interesting because I can connect in that way too, about not being so self-aware about my sexuality at that time.
3: Yeah. People just notice there's something's not right. Like <laughs> some I, I sense the spirit of the other in you. Um, so, uh, I kind of associated that with my love of theater and everything about my former identity. And so I made a very hard schism. So I guess what I would say is all through the ages of like 12 through like 21, I really kind of gave up my love of theater in so many ways. Like I was so embarrassed about that, but no, I I would say I was not tracking the theater that was going on in New York versus LA because it was so out of my mind. Like I, I was really into punk rock and I thought I was going to start a rock band when I got to New York and I was, you know, into fashion and I was into art and, um, so, yeah, it wasn't until I was like about 21, 22 that I kind of came to terms with the fact that I still did love theater and I wanted to figure out a way to create theater that reconciled and stitched back together these two disparate parts of my identity, the first 10 years of my life and the second 10 years of my life, and to create a body of work in theater that would appeal to people who feel totally disenfranchised by musicals and uninterested in them because they're lame. They don't sound like the music they're listening to. They don't address communities or stories that speak to their community. Community um, or that their personal life.
2: Now you went back to NYU for your master's, right?
3: Yeah, I did the graduate musical theater writing program um, when I was 22. In like, well, okay, so back up. Jason Egan of Ars Nova found me on MySpace when I was 19 and invited me to do a concert there. And that was kind of like the wild west days of Ars Nova. Like now, you know, heavy is the head that wears the crown. Like everybody wants to get in the doors of Ars Nova. But back then you could kind of just email Jason and be like, Hey, Jason, I need to do a reading of my show. And they would be like, great, we'll put that together for you. You know, now that would never probably never happen. Um, but, uh, yeah, I did a, my first musical. Once I had this epiphany of like, oh yeah, I still do love this, and I want to try writing something. I wrote this all electronic musical. I think it was like 2010 or 2011. Uh, it was all electronic. It was sci-fi. It was about robots. It was about the singularity. It was about celebrity pop music, and and my whole score was inspired by people like Goldfrapp, uh, Ladytron, uh, Kraftwerk, like all all this like dope electronic music. And, you know, to their credit, Arzanova gave me this reading. It was totally transformative for me. It had so many incredible performers in it. Brian Tyree Henry, who at the time was not this huge, amazing TV star, but, you know, was so insanely talented and incredible. Patrick Page, uh, Teal Wicks, Matt Doyle, Nathan Lee Graham, Paige, Paige Davis, like all these really great people. And that experience was so inspiring that I was like, okay, I should go back to grad school now to actually fully understand the craft of what I'm doing. Cause I think I want to do this with my life.
2: I think we're both really interested, Mary and I, in the storytelling of the writer. So do you feel like you're, especially early on, you know, when you had that epiphany of becoming, um, a musical theater writer, did you have specific stories that were burning in you to tell? And has that evolved over your career?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I am interested in narratives that are around self-actualization because it's taken me so much to embrace myself in my life and undo a lot of my trauma I have around uh, my identity. And so I'm very interested in characters that are on similar journeys um, to self-actualization and not just like the good, but also the bad. I mean, understanding that people have to make big sacrifices sometimes personally, environmentally in order to get what they want. And, uh, and also as kind of a corollary to that, because I grew growing up, I was bullied and didn't have any friends really at all. I'm very interested in community because I never really felt like I had one. And so that's kind of like one of my, (laughs) my friend Antoinette Wandu, um, the playwright uh, who wrote Passover says that, you know, all writers have like some core wound that they, they explore and write over and over and over again. And I think for me, it's around identity and community. And so all of my narratives tend to be around, Uh, Whether it's through robots or the apocalypse or Korean pop stars or forgotten 70s gay bars or tattooed ladies. It's about, one, how do you become yourself and what is the cost of that? And how do you fit into a community of other people who similarly are trying to be themselves?
1: Would you say that you've at the end of any of those or all of those stories have found an answer and has looking at all of the shows in a timeline has has the answer shifted along the way?
3: Yeah. I don't know if the answer has shifted so much for me as that I've become less apologetic about my conclusions <laughs> uh, for myself. I mean, I think what's interesting is that both with The View Upstairs And my musical I'm writing now, K-pop, I mean, not K-pop, although there is some similarities with K-pop in that narrative, but uh, with the tattooed lady, I mean, they're both about these communities of people that were highly discriminated against, both people who worked in the freak show and people in the 70s uh, who were attending gay bars in a time in which it was illegal to be gay. And traditionally in the media when you have narratives around quote-unquote freaks or people who are the other the stories are about like how can we get these these others to be assimilated or integrated into society or accept themselves actually now that i think about it this is the narrative of k-pop too right because k-pop was also about that like our musical was about all of these k-pop stars figuring out how to appeal in the american market and then at the end realizing we're not going to cross over to you you need to cross over to us and so that That is essentially the message of all the shows I've written. It's about how can you embrace the thing that makes you different and not assimilate that into the passive culture, but say the, uh, the dominant culture rather has to incorporate what is beautiful about us and transform itself. I don't want a seat at your shitty ass table. I'm building my own table and you can pull up a seat and you can sit there. Like in the tattooed lady in the final song, um, there's a lyric, Uh, That's, it's better to be odd than ordinary. That is like the thesis statement of my life that I try to adhere to with all of my storytelling and just how I exist as a human in this world.
2: Mm, I love that. Yeah. If we can take the view upstairs as an example for, you know, your process, since it's very fitting with pride, what kind of research or dramaturgy did you have to do when you initially began writing that musical? did your, you know, did your background in um, gender and sexuality studies really assist you? Were you aware of this um, incident? Well, my my background uh,
3: academically in gender and sexuality studies certainly helps in terms of understanding um, pre-AIDS queer communities and the history of that in the 70s and knowing what a lot of those clubs were. Um, and understanding, uh, the gay male perspective of sex being a political act and also understanding, um, really the risks of coming out of the closet and what all of that meant. Um, but in terms of the event itself, that was never a part of my core studies. I mean, one of the things that was an impetus for me and wanting to write the show was that even though I was writing these 20 page papers, um, about cyborg feminism and the epistemology of the closet and Judith Butler and Foucault and all of that um none of my professors had ever heard of the Upstairs Lounge fire and i myself stumbled upon it t- pretty much totally randomly on the internet um i think in a chat room where someone was saying oh you know in two months it'll be the 35th or 36th anniversary of this fire that killed 32 people and it's the worst massacre in lgbtq history in our country and you know this was pre-pulse this was I don't know. It was just it was a completely different world then. And so all of this felt inconceivable. It didn't even feel real. And I remember presenting it to my professors who were some of like the foremost queer thinkers in the country. And so many of them had not even heard about this event. And so I knew
2: that I wanted to shine a light on it for For that reason, Pulse happened in 2016, right? And your play premiered off Broadway in 2017. So, do do you think that that really had any correlation to you know theaters trying to produce it?
3: I don't know. It certainly had um, a much bigger life than I expected when we did it off Broadway. I knew that we were the first show in New York to open right after the election of Donald Trump, and I knew. I mean, I think there were other shows, but we were the first musical, certainly. And I knew the only musical that was opening that was going to even have any kind of overlap uh, thematically or, or politically with exploring what was going on in the world. So I knew that I wanted to use the show as an opportunity to speak truth to power and you know I remember um, I did a lot of rewrites in the ending in terms of comparing and contrasting 1973 versus uh, 2016 2017 and talking about at the end there was this big speech about you know someone says it gets better and the other person is like it's not fucking you know Wes the main character says it's not better actually everything is worse like this pulse shooting just happened the KKK is marching in the street again like cops are committing all these like acts of violence against like black and brown people like and i remember at the time when i wrote this like everyone was like oh you're exaggerating like you're being melodramatic like so many of the critiques of the show were like oh it's a beautiful show up until the last 5 minutes and then it's just like really preachy and hits you over the head and like maybe it was preachy but i wanted to fucking preach and i will say the first um licensed production that ended up happening after new york was in virginia and just so happens that it opened a day after basically like the neo-Nazi Charleston demonstrations that were happening. And so it was not, I don't wanna say vindicating, but it was a reality of like, no, actually this shit isn't melodramatic, it's in fact real. And so I think a lot of people were moved by the spirit of that in the piece. And so I think it has gotten licensed because people want to learn from the past in order to figure out how we can speak to this moment and what we can learn to, to figure out how to, grab the torch and fight back and keep pushing towards equality and progress in all those ways.
1: I have a question about the writing in a contemporary world, but reflecting on the historical events. And I'm curious as to your take on it and how you work through that in your in your writing process. And then as you continue through the development process, could you speak to what that was like for you? You can talk specifically about The View Upstairs or any of the other pieces that would fit, but I'm just curious as to your take on it as a writer.
2: Especially since you didn't, you know, you weren't alive in the 70s. So how do you really tap into that? Absolutely. Well, every, every impulse I have
3: as a writer comes from a place of wanting to be truthful. And so, you know, some people had issue with the fact that The View Upstairs is a time travel story, but I don't know any other way I could have told that. Because for me, exactly what you said, I was not alive in 1973, but I do know what it feels like to grow up as a millennial who has had increasingly all these privileges of, of gay rights, not known, even though I've been bullied, I haven't known struggle in specifically that way. But I do feel authentically a disconnect with my history. And so I I know what it would be like for someone like me or someone of my generation to Have that kind of cultural clash if they were back in the past and they were experiencing both things that were worse, but also better in some ways. Because I will say that, you know, although the oppression back then was much more overt, perhaps, than it was now, than it is now, there is community and culture that has generated out of a shared experience of oppression that right now is so much more decentralized uh and all this tech that we have to connect us in some ways i think has precluded connection because we have all the filters that allow us to uh you know not converse with anyone we decide in advance that we don't think is worth our time to converse with which was the opposite of what bathhouses were you know it's like a a black cab driver could fuck a white ceo and they could have like a moving sexual experience and uh shake hands and call it a day and that that's not everything that doesn't solve racism of course it doesn't solve class struggle but it's uh in the jane jacobs sense of bathhouses, it uh something about it's good (laughs) (laughs) i would say um so yeah yeah i i like to even when i'm examining the past i like to write about it from a contemporary perspective and bring everything i have as a person living now, because I think that that's what makes the writing exciting. And also I just love the juxtaposition of time periods. And I love anachronisms like there's like, I totally get off on people in, you know, being in like 1800s garb, but speaking like they're alive right now in 2020.
2: Kind of like, I don't know. This is like one example that comes to mind, like doll's house part two. I don't know if you guys to see that. Yes. Love it. Love it would you say that your composition style is influenced by a particular artist you know because when you're writing stuff for the like the 70s right did you try to like immerse yourself in the 70s artists
3: i kind of didn't um i don't know actually it's weird when i am composing when i'm in composing mode mm-hmm. which is usually i i kind of go on and off it's like i'll do two years on two years off two years on two years off and in those two years i'll be really productive and i'll be writing all my stuff and then once the show is up, I'll be, you know, brainstorming for the next idea. And when I'm in my off modes of brainstorming, then I'm listening to a ton of music. I'm taking in a lot of influence. But actually when I'm crafting a score, I actively almost try to not listen to other music because I don't want other melodies getting in my head. I'm very interested in, in exploring my own voice as a composer and trying to, to ensure that I'm creating what I think or believe is a unique sound. Um, but certainly in the same way that I, I talked about learning musical theater as a language. Um, you know, like one of the only ways I bonded with my dad growing up was I have so many memories of us being in the car together and listening to classic rock radio, which just so happened to all be 70s era music. It was like uh Fleetwood Mac and Stevie Wonder and Sly Stone and Earth Wind and Fire and Elton John and Queen. And and because I loved my dad, I loved that music and um, all of that has always been in my head. Um, so I think it wasn't hard for me to, when I was creating this score, reference some of those sounds of that era. Cause I authentically am obsessed with that era. You know, like 1973 is the year Stevie wonder who is my favorite artist released my favorite Stevie wonder album talking book. So, uh, yeah i don't know it's kind of like that's a little bit like my creative wheelhouse my bread and butter
1: and what i was thinking earlier when you made the reference about how you wanted to, to start a rock band and also like work in fashion in new york i was thinking well theater is really a culmination of all of those things that you could have ever wanted so it feels great. totally
3: and that's i think that was like the thing i ultimately realized um in terms of like a, around the time i was 21 22 i guess oh my god it's a decade ago at this point um <laughs> But uh, yeah, I was doing so many concerts, like I said, around 100 concerts where it was just me at a piano performing in these little clubs. And I I really started feeling isolated and lonely up there. And I craved the experience of world making, which is what theater is. Right. I wanted the stats I wanted. The costumes. I wanted the lights. I wanted the performers. I wanted the director. I wanted all of those collaborations. I wanted to, in the same way that through my work on exploring community, I wanted a community of, of a chosen family of, of artists that I was working with to create some vision or, or some, some experience that people could attend. That's very much a part of why I kind of ended up back in theater.
1: Is there a favorite collaboration that you have, whether it's working with the director or working with actors, writing with, you know, with an actor's voice in mind or, you know, or seeing all the designs come to life?
2: Yeah.
3: I mean, there's, I totally love writing with actors in mind. And that's something that always was how musicals got written. You know, like you'd like to think that, oh, yeah, someone wrote Gypsy because they were like, oh, this would be a great story. It's like, yeah, it'd be a great story for Ethel Merman. Do you know what I mean? It's like you and and that was. I think what made us love so many of those musicals because they were specific and they were written for unique people. And I feel like somewhere along the way we lost our way and and a lot of writers started writing these really generic pieces. And as a result of that, actors at conservatories started being taught be generic (laughs) so you can be in these generic pieces. And if you have something unique about you, don't show it. And uh, as someone who sits behind the table, I just can't tell you how dull that is. I don't like those performers and I don't like that type of writing and I don't want that. I want to work with the weird, crazy unicorns like people like Nathan Lee Graham, who, by the way. He did that uh, reading of of my musical Wired when I was 22, before I went back to grad school and then uh, totally inspired me. And I knew when I was writing The View Upstairs, the character of Willie in The View Upstairs, I was like, this is Nathan Lee Graham. I'm writing it for Nathan Lee Graham. I'm, I'm writing the lines of dialogue with him in my head because uh, I know exactly what he will bring to the role. And then it was so funny because I remember when I was reading some of the reviews of of The View Upstairs, I would read reviews that were like, oh, Max Vernon's dialogue is terrible, but they're very lucky because they've found an incredibly talented performer, Nathan Lee Graham, who improvises most of their lines of dialogue. And I'm like, no, actually I wrote all of those with Nathan in mind, knowing what Nathan was gonna do and that it was gonna be exceptional and genius and, and inspired, but yeah whatever it's fine it is what it is So yeah i mean look i can take critique if what i do is not your cup of tea that's totally fine but i just get annoyed when this stuff is not factual Mm. like i remember someone critiqued the view upstairs and they said that all the music was pre-recorded and that we didn't have a live band when we did have a live (laughs) band of, of five people performing every single night um i remember one critic said uh how could you set a, a gay musical in the 70s and not think that during the fire scene when everyone was dying to have people sing hot stuff by Donna Summer? And I was like, You think that's a good idea? you think after this moment where we've built up this community and we've like we're trying to have an emotional catharsis and understand the the, the pain and loss of this history? You think when all these people are dying in a fire, these fags should be like hot stuff? <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's just not genuine. Like, come on.
3: Well, it's genuine. It's genuinely stupid. <laughs> it's like, yeah, anyway. I love that. So, but uh, I also am having a very good collaboration right now with my director uh, and writer of Tattoo Lady, uh, Aaron Courtney and director Ellie Heyman. I love both of them. And Ellie, I'm working with several projects on uh, and it's always a blast with her.
2: I'm so interested in the two big international, like subsequent productions of the view upstairs after New York, right? So you guys went to Sydney in Sydney.
3: I didn't, I wasn't able to go to Sydney, but I, uh, I watched a little bit of the video. It looked fabulous. Yeah. I was going to
2: ask what was your involvement in those two international productions? So like you didn't go to Sydney, but did you still have any say in certain things or as a resource for those actors and creative teams?
3: I rewrote the ending of the production in Sydney because uh, for that specific production, because all like they just completely do not have the same relationship with law enforcement that we do in our country. So it was like everything I was talking about in that rant at the end that I so defend and love, uh, literally just would have gone over everybody's heads and not made any sense at all. So So,
2: how do they see law enforcement in Australia?
3: I think they love and respect (laughs) that.
2: I mean, I don't want to generalize, but that was the (laughs) feedback that I was getting from all of
3: the creatives in in Australia of being like, well, I'm not going to do my terrible Australian accent, but people seem like they literally didn't understand the concept of Australian police just like committing acts of violence against people or being bigoted or not, not to say that I'm sure their society is free without bigotry. I'm sure right. there's a lot of shit going on there. Like there is everywhere else, but yes. anyway, I didn't let it, anybody off the hook, but I just tried to figure out a way to work with the director to write the ending that had the same spirit, but felt more specifically to their culture so that it just
2: they didn't
3: go over everybody's heads. And then people didn't get the message of the show. Yeah. So it did that, but that was really interesting because The Sydney production had all the same costumes and set. It was like, and lighting fixtures, it was like flown over there. But like the London production was actually a fully different Show It was completely reconceived. And it was the first time I actually delved back into the writing process after about 15 productions had already happened around the country. And I got to have a, a new collaboration with a new director, Jonathan O'Boyle, who's so fabulous. And I actually got to fix a lot of the things that had bothered me about my script in the the last iteration. And I think we ended up with a better show.
2: That's really cool. Um, Can you speak to how you went about, you know, tackling those new revisions? Was it with the director or, or like, was it, did it come from, you know, what you saw in all those earlier productions that you were like, oh, I'm just itching to change these things.
3: It was both. There were so many things I was itching to change in the first, uh, production but it's kind of a little bit like project runway where equity comes in and is like designers put down your pencils step away from your workstations (laughs) you know and then it's it's frozen and you can't do shit otherwise you're gonna you know you'll get a complaint from equity but um yeah i had a running list of things that were I, i was like if i were to ever seriously delve back into this here are the things i would like to address and then there were also just from suddenly showing up in london and seeing a completely different iteration of my show with new costumes and new directorial choices. Mm. Suddenly I was seeing the material in a fresh way and I was like, now's the time to to try something new and see how it works on these audiences during previews and uh, make some pretty radical choices and I'm I was excited about what we did.
1: I think that's really cool that you were able to 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 use that experience of seeing your show in a completely new light and then also to act on it and like really say like okay, I really want to make the change for, for this part. And I'm going to do it. Cause I, I wonder if I'd be curious to see if, if all writers would have that same perspective of like seeing the show and then, be, <laughs> I, and then acknowledging that like maybe things could be different.
3: Yeah. I think a lot don't. And not that I'm not also a stubborn pain in the ass, but for me, um, I don't think the work is ever over. Um, and I'm always trying to get things better and better. Cause if people are paying money to see it. I want it to be a a memorable transformative experience. So, um, I certainly try to keep working as hard as I can, as long as I can. And
2: so you had a brand new cast of actors too. Did that also influence it or did you really keep those characters set in stone at that point?
3: Totally. Well, yeah, I mean, they were, you know, my new cast, they were asking really wonderful, interesting questions and embodying the characters in a totally different way. Like, um, so, yeah, for sure, I learned a lot from that. Actually, I had an experience with one of the actors where I ended up cutting quite a few lines of dialogue um, from the character. And they were quite upset. But I had to say, I'm not naming names on anybody. I won't, But I will say, I believe you are a better actor than the actor I had last time. And even though I didn't like this in the first production, I didn't want to cut it from the text because I wasn't sure if it was just being acted incorrectly or if the writing was bad. And now I was like, you are acting this so well that I have to acknowledge that the writing is not doing what I want it to do. (laughs) So sorry. Thank you so much. Cutting your part.
1: What is the conversation like with that actor then? Is it very just like Frank? Like, okay, these changes are being made or is there? Oh, well,
3: I think they locked themselves in their dressing room and started crying and then called their agent and threatened to quit the show. And then the director had to talk with their agent. But then but then they were like, it's for the art. Okay, I'm, go- I'm, I'm going to be professional. I'm going to do the role. It's, you know. Right,
2: but like, isn't, my that terrible whole, British accent. isn't that the whole idea is that it should be for, to serve the piece.
3: Yeah, of course. But, you know, this is a This is something that in the last year or so I've had to really wrestle with, especially as someone with the show going to Broadway, um, understanding that at the top levels of our field, it is an industry like any other. It is a business. Lots of money is at stake and business decisions are made. And uh, we all have the right reasons i think for doing what we do but there you know there's ego that goes into it people have to figure out okay i've got a job now but what are my next jobs i've got lined up and so everybody in this industry is always positioning for what's next and um that complicates shit you know yeah. capitalism
2: <laughs> the system. speaking of systems i'm interested if you have you know some sort of perspective in seeing the different systems in uh, abroad versus New York as a theater system, if you'd like in quotes.
3: Well, it's very interesting having worked in London and in New York because in New York, when you have your, um, your previews or press nights, it's usually over the course of two nights, you have the eight people. You know, it's like the eight people that come. You know, it's like Adam Feldman, and it's Ben Brantley, and it's Jesse Green, and it's, uh, you know what have you? Uh, at the time it was Sarah Holdren, but she's gone from New York Magazine. But you have the people, and you know who they are. You know what they look like. They sit in their seats with their cunty face on and their notepad, and you just go, oh shit, they're gonna demolish my show. This is it. They see your show. They have expert poker faces. You have no idea what they're thinking. And then you wake up either to a critics pick or to someone telling, saying you're a hack or somewhere in between what's and and those people, mind you, because there's not that many of them actually have an inordinate amount of power to open or close shows. Um, unless you're working on the nonprofit model in which it doesn't really matter because they have subscribers, they have a a certain amount of time that they're going to play or not play in London no critic has any power because there's so many of them and it's truly bizarre but the press nights we had in london you would have 60 people in the audience with notepads like 60 critics sitting in one audience so on one hand it's terrifying but it's also there's something weirdly less terrifying about it because i remember when we did the view upstairs i woke up the next day to 40 reviews which was like more reviews than I've ever had in my life on anything. And it was like, because there's 40 reviews, it's like, you can pick and choose like, Oh, I liked that one. Hate that one. Like that one. Hate that one. Oh, that's great. Oh, you know, interesting. Oh, it's like, it's so much. And there's so many voices out there. There's so much noise that the audience just kind of goes to see whatever they want, regardless of what the critics say, they go to see it based on, um, is this interesting to me? And so I remember when we opened the view upstairs in London, there was a, a Brexit supporting very conservative uh, newspaper. I think that gave our show one star, one out of five stars Uh, in spite of the fact that we had like one of the best casts. like even if you think my writing is utter dog shit, like we had objectively one of the most talented best casts in like off West end history. Like literally history. I mean, you had Olivier win- winners doing this thing for like no money because they believed in it, and like a West End show would be lucky to get one of them, let alone an off West End show with all of these people. But uh, so, anyways, so you had the Brexit bitches doing that shit. Uh, but then. All these other you know reviews came out of like all the young papers all the queer papers all of the like artistic people being like this is important this is what we need more of in like the the theater scene here because what's interesting i talked to a bunch of um not to ramble but i talked to a bunch of musical theater makers in london and although there is such a vibrant scene in london it's the biggest theater scene outside of new york they don't have the same development that for musicals that New York or the U S does like no one is really incubating new musicals out there. You know, a lot of them are still kind of living in this Cameron Mackintosh, Angeloid Weber Webber world where, you know, musicals, have to have 20 people and they have to have enormous budgets and enormous sets, which is why I think six is such a game changer for them. I love the audiences. I found the audiences were so expressive, so generous, so emotive. I loved working with actors. I found the actors to be incredibly professional. One thing about British theater is you don't get much in the way of previews. Here in New York, you get like three and a half weeks
2: of previews out there. You get like four previews and they put the shit up. But there's 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 pros and cons to that. I'm really interested. And and Mary, I think you and I have talked about this because I got a chance to see The Inheritance Part One in London when I was there in 2018. And I'm wondering that was like a New York story. And when I saw it here, I felt completely different. It was just revitalized in some like amazing Mm. New York way of the energy of the people in the room, like the way that the audience was responding. I think the way the actors felt, I'm wondering, did you feel the same way with your play since it was really a, an American story? I was worried about that, but you know, there's so many
3: parallels between Boris Johnson and Trump and (laughs) Brexit And like every fucked up racist thing going on here. And like, There is a history of, you know, gay people being murdered in in Britain, too. And I think there were a lot of thematic parallels that people were able to latch on to, even though it felt like it is an American history. Mm -hmm.
1: At the beginning of this conversation, you actually had said that you didn't really have any mentors when you were growing up. And I'm curious as to now that you're... You know, on the other side of things, and pe- you have younger writers, younger performers, younger theater makers looking up to you and the work that you're putting out there. Yeah, H- how has that been? Have have you really just taken them under your wing? How are you like? I
3: try to, and I'm I'm very honest with some people. Like a lot of people want me to mentor them, and sometimes I'm I'm like, why? You know what I mean? Like my, I'm listening to your work, and it is not my aesthetic. I'm not the right mentor for you. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was younger. Um, there was a little bit of like, you know, me starting to get into musical theater and reaching out to the elderly statesman gaze of the theater and, and wanting their attention and approval and, and mentorship and all of that, and getting kind of ignored by most of the vast majority of those people. And then me coming to terms with, well, did I actually want their mentorship because I believed in their art and what they were doing and felt like there was a overlap with what I wanted to do, or was I seeking their mentorship because of their name and chasing fancy? And uh, I feel like that's very much what I'm interested in now with mentoring people—is mentoring the people that actually feel like they have stylistic overlap with me, because like I feel like I'm trying to pioneer and carve out a place for other queer weirdos in musical theater, not even necessarily queer, but just people who. Um, have a particular aesthetic. And, uh, for all those people, I 100%, I've got the advice I want to give a leg up to, I want to, um, advocate for, but if someone's doing something different, that's great, but they should find a, a mentor that is more in tune with them so they can be a stronger advocate for them. Um, but yeah, I love mentoring. Um, I've done through the the theater wing, um, the songwriting challenge, where for a couple of years now I've gone to different places throughout the country and I've worked with um, high school songwriters to help get them scholarships for college and help uh, mentor the next generation of musical theater writers. And um, I have many very vibrant Instagram DM conversations with people all the time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I bet social media has really kind of changed that, especially because it's really connected the younger generation and the fans to the people doing the work.
3: Well, it's interesting because I I feel like because I wrote the show about a gay bar and because I'm so visibly genderqueer and who I am, I get so many messages from people that are like hey, I love the view upstairs. I'm thinking of changing my pronouns and getting top surgery. Can you like help me write this letter to my mom? And I'm like, okay, <laughs> like, this is beautiful. I encourage you, but like... I am you need to find people in your support network that can actually be there for you in a personal way because like I don't know you that way and I don't want to give the wrong advice. So it it this has been really interesting for me to try to figure out how to navigate the responsibility. That. Yeah, the responsibility as a a creator of of queer theater that creates spaces for queer theater that are around community and intimacy and 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 loving that and doing that, but also having boundaries around. Just because I wrote the show, we are not necessarily, like, I'm here for you in the ways I can be, but I am not your chosen family. You have to actively go out and choose that family for yourself. Like, you have to do that work, because I already have my chosen family, and it's taken me 10 years to, you know, it's an ongoing experience of cultivating who those people are, quite frankly.
2: Can you actually talk about your experience working in the theater as someone who's gender queer, as far as, like... I've seen in the past couple of years, people are more conscious about creating that safe space. People put their pronouns in their email signatures now. I mean, that wasn't a thing a couple of years ago. I think something that's very interesting that
3: I'm still trying to work out with my therapist is <laughs> um, I feel like as a genderqueer person who tends to wear women's clothing and makeup almost every day, but has a beard and a deep, sonorous voice, I both benefit from male privilege and also get brushed off in ways that feel distinctly femme-phobic. And I don't know how... Like, it's hard to explain. It's like in in production meetings, it both feels like I'm heard because I've got this deep, bassy, resonant voice, but also because I wear women's clothing and, and makeup and and all of that, I'm seen as a diva and I'm seeing, I can be, a lot of shit can get projected onto me in a way that feels coded as female. So it's, I don't know, it's just a never ending thing to untangle. <laughs> and then I also have this experience of like all the time people post things about me and use male pronouns, even though for like two, three years, I've been very specific about requesting that people don't. And, and that's fine. I'm not like the most hung up about it, but it just feels weird because then I read my bio and I like, I'm like, I just don't know who that person is. Like, it doesn't feel like me. Those don't feel like my accomplishments. So yeah, I don't know. So what are some
2: (laughs) ways that, you know, like fellow theater makers can be better about providing space for people who want their pronouns to be respected or gender queer artists like yourself?
3: Uh, I mean, I think the first, the best thing, and this is something I want to continue to try to do in my life towards other people as well, not just in terms of gender, but in terms of everything is to not make assumptions and to ask more questions. Because I think the more you, the more questions you ask, the more, you know, the more you're set up to avoid misunderstandings and to treat people with respect and just to tell people to not beat yourself up. I mean, like we all fuck up and then we we wake up the next day and we figure out how to do better and to, to create spaces that are even more inclusive the next time around. And uh,
2: I would like to do that. And I hope people will do that for me as well. And how do you think theater makers in positions of power can make that space more comfortable for artists or, you know, provide queer artists the space to even produce their work. I think what's interesting, and something
3: I would like to I don't know how to speak to this necessarily, but I will say that it feels like the vast majority of I can't speak to theaters everywhere, but theaters in New York especially are run by white men and often heterosexual white men, sometimes gay white men, Um, but I will say when When genderqueer artists or queer artists or um, artists of color, black artists, brown artists, Asians, whatever, uh, are asked to create work or commissioned to create work so often they are being asked to create pieces that are centered around trauma (laughs) because it feels like trauma is the way that white theater um, artistic directors want their white audiences to understand the experience of the other. And not to say that there isn't value to that too, but I'm increasingly wary of like, who is all of this performance of trauma for? And in what ways does it hold an audience accountable or actually allow an audience to give themselves a pat on the back and not engage with the real material because they think they did something enough just by going to see a show? And so this is another thing that I think a lot about as a queer... Theater maker is like, it can be really hard to feel like you bear the burden of representing your community in all of its infinite nuance. And so, I guess what I would just say is to theaters, just do more because the more you try to achieve parity in terms of gender, in terms of race, in terms of sexuality, you know, what have you, the more you're going to get a multiplicity of viewpoints so that any one play or a musical doesn't feel like it has to have carry the burden of representing everyone and representing all of the infinite nuance of the experience. Um, so, and I, I hope and, and want to believe that theaters are becoming more aware of that.
1: Well, i there's so much of what you just said that like, I'm going to have to listen back and unpack again. <laughs> Cause it's, I mean, I, I think it's very true. And it's for someone who, who does work for a producer, like there is so much to be said about about what you what you just said and how we can truly move forward is the only way to like start making those changes now
3: also i don't know if it's just like where i'm at I don't know. I think I'm just contrarian in general. When shit is good, I want to write about how things are bad. And when shit is bad, I want to write about how things are good. But like where my spirit is at right now, um, in terms of feeling my responsibility, not as just a queer artist, but as someone who's about spectacle and, and lights and show business and glitter and feathers and makeup, like I want to lift people up, you know? Like I want to lift people's spirits and I want to imagine work that's not just about trauma but is about joy. Because I think one of the greatest things that theater creators can do is to imagine better worlds than the ones we live in, in order to model that, to dream it into existence. And so I want to dream worlds into existence that have more joy in them than the ones we inhabit right now. Which is why with the view upstairs, I wanted it, even though everybody dies in the end, up until the moment everyone dies, I wanted that shit to feel like a celebration.
1: Yeah, so we are at the last question, unfortunately. I feel like this time definitely flew by. But as a, as a last question, we always ask our guests, what is the last great piece of theater that you saw?
3: It's so crazy because my perception of time is like so whacked out because I'm like... There's a part of me that's like, have we always been on lockdown? Like, did I imagine <laughs> the world before? Like, has it always agree. been like this? Like, it's really weird. It's like every everything is like freaking blended together now. But I remember seeing the um, the revival of Once on This Island and just thinking that it was so good. They just killed it. Everything about it. Alex Newell as Asako was so genius. The set by Dane Laffery, the, the direction, the lights. I mean, so much about it was just... I was just overwhelmed by how excellent it was. Yeah, that's really coming to mind in this moment for whatever reason. I'm sure I'm going to get off the phone. And I'm going to be like, God damn it, Town!" <laughs> uh, but no, uh, but uh, although there's a lot about Town that I did love. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know why in this moment I'm thinking about Once on this Island.
2: It's that and it, that show really or that production really created that world that I think you spoke of that seemed appealing to you. You know, that whole experience of going to the theater and that community. Yeah.
3: And Clint Ramos's costumes. I mean, oh, my God. Also, after I saw it for like a month afterwards, I was harassing my boyfriend. I would just constantly be like, how about a juicy mango? And then my boyfriend would just be like, shut the fuck
2: up.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's amazing.
2: How can our listeners find you on social media or your website? You can find
3: me on Instagram at frulein sally bowels not Bowles from cabaret but bowels and uh on twitter it's just max vernon and uh on my website it's maxvernon.com Yes.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you we, so much. Otherwise,
3: you can find me in a gutter near you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> thank you so much for joining us um, thank and you. being so open about um, a lot of really private stuff.
3: Uh, dance, 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 revolution and trauma. <laughs>
2: yeah, your dance,
3: dance. That's going to be the name of my my memoir one day: dance, dance, revolution and trauma. Dance, dance, diet Ooh, and trauma. <laughs> all right well uh i hope you guys stay well and stay healthy all your listeners um wear a mask keep your spirits up yes yes bye thank
2: you
1: bye Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Page to Stage. To keep up with us, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Page to Stage Podcast.
2: And if you're enjoying these conversations, we would really appreciate it if you could take a couple minutes to rate and review us wherever you're listening to this podcast. Until next time. That's Brian. That's Mary.
1: We'll see you later.
2: Bye.